Thank you, David. Good morning, Arcadia. Happy Easter. He is risen. risen. All right. I'm glad you guys know that. I'm, I'm, I'm always a little better at the first part of that than the second. I, my mom always said I was better at starting something than finishing it, so I, I don't understand that. Anyway, we're, we are glad that you are here. Uh, just let me give a, a, a couple little um, updates. First of all, uh, it's Easter Sunday, so obviously there are more people here than usual. Um, our 9 o'clock service was, was absolutely jammed. We had almost 400 people up here in this, in this room. We didn't know we could fit that many in here. Uh, we actually had to close down our, our children's ministry at 5 after 9. We couldn't take another kid down there. So it was a great time, and it, it's uh, nearly full uh, at 11 o'clock as well. We are glad. And, of course, that means that there's a lot of people here who aren't normally here because uh, Easter's a time when family's in from out of town, and you're inviting friends, and extended family come. And so a number of you, this is your first time at Redemption Church, and I just want to let you know that um, Redemption Church is one church with seven congregations, and we are the Arcadia expression of Redemption Church. So today on Easter Sunday throughout the state of Arizona, including all the way up to Flagstaff, we have 17 different Easter services uh, going on, and we are glad to be a part of that. And so we welcome you. We are glad that you are here. We are glad that you're going to spend the next three or four hours with us during the sermon. We appreciate that. So that's really nice. Um, but we are, we, we're, we're, we're just honored that you would, uh, you would spend some time with us uh, here today. My name is Frank, I'm the lead pastor here at, at uh, Arcadia. And then for those of you who are regulars here, who are normally here, and, and you would count this as your church home, I just want to let you know that um, uh, the next nine weeks is going to look a little bit different uh, than what we've been doing. Uh, for the last year, we've been walking through the book of Romans verse by verse, and uh, we're up sort of in the transition between uh, chapters 9 and 10. Uh, starting next week, we're going to take nine weeks off of, of Romans. We will start back up in Romans on July, around July 1st, and we will finish it by uh, the beginning of Advent in, in uh, the late fall. Um, but what we're going to do over the next nine weeks is for the first four weeks, starting next Sunday, we're going to do a, a short series called Pictures of the Kingdom, which is actually going to be uh, looking at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, which is where Jesus preaches all of his uh, Kingdom of Heaven parables. And so uh, we're going to spend four weeks in that, looking at what the, the Kingdom of God looks like. And then after that, we'll have five weeks where every Redemption Church uh, is given five weeks, maybe once a year, to be able to just kind of do whatever they want to do. And so I got together with the Shans, that would be Mortensen and Myers, and we put our heads together, and between the three of us, we've got two brains, and they're usually with the Shans, and, and we came up with the idea that we should go into the Old Testament and do some Old Testament stuff, uh, because it would be helpful for the background of what Paul is talking about in Romans, especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11, which we're kind of in the middle of. So we're going to do some Old Testament narrative stuff uh, for those five weeks, and then we will dive right back into Romans. But as for right now, what I'd like you to do is if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones out, would you please go to Mark chapter 15? David read 16, 1 through 8. We're eventually going to get there. That's the, the thrust of this morning's message, the resurrection, but I, I want to set it up a little bit uh, for you. So we're going to also talk about the, the crucifixion, the cross as well. Uh, some people asked uh, at the beginning, they said, uh, I noticed the, message, uh, the title of the message is The End of the Beginning. And why would you say that? And here's why. In my experience, in our experience, what we've found is that even if you're somebody who is what we would call churched, somebody who's, uh, who's around church a lot, or if you're somebody who's not necessarily church, somebody who's not around church uh, quite that much, 
from both of those groups, there are actually a lot of people who look upon the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as kind of the end of the story of Jesus. And our point is really the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection is really just the beginning of everything. Uh, Many biblical scholars, if they were to take all of history and look at it through the, the grid, the lens of the biblical narrative, of biblical history, they would say that there are four eras in our history, and, and we'll put the eras up on the screen right there. There's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Uh, creation, the era of creation, is really only covered by two chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapters one and two, where God creates everything, and because God is good, everything that he has created is also good. And then the era of the fall, that's covered by only one chapter in Scripture. That would be Genesis chapter 3. That's when uh, humanity rebels against God and breaks relationship with God by sinning against God. And because of that, all of humanity has fallen into sin. And that's where we are now. We are in the midst of this fallen situation because of our sin. Uh, This sin has been imputed to all of us. It's what's wrong with the world. Notice there's stuff that's wrong with the world, and that's what it is. It's sin. Uh, Then the next era is redemption. The redemption era in biblical history actually starts in Genesis, actually starts towards the end of Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes his first promise of the Messiah who is to come, who is going to make everything right. The Messiah who is going to come and die for the sins of his people, thus reconciling them to God and redeeming them. And so redemption starts in Genesis, the end of Genesis 3, Genesis 4 and on. It's, it's the promise of the Messiah and then it's the actual coming of the Messiah, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we are still in that redemption phase, but now because Jesus has come, we are in redemption that's moving very quickly towards the restoration era. The restoration era is spoken about in the book of Revelation. That's when Jesus comes again, the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes back to set things right, to make everything the way it's supposed to be, to, to, to remodel, if you will, if you want to use that kind of language, to remodel the earth and creation into what it is supposed to be, void of sin. Uh, no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. That will be restoration. So we're living in the midst of the, of the, uh, of the era of, re- of redemption that is headed towards restoration. And, and, and really, that's the best part of the story until we get to the actual restoration. It's, it's a great time to be alive. The church, we are the ones who are starting that restoration work now here on earth and we've been doing it for 2,000 years. And I want you to hear that. That's a really important point for everybody to understand. Whether you're a, a believer in Jesus or not, it's something that you should hear. The church has been around for 2,000 years. It has outlived every nation, every movement, Every, every worldview that you can possibly think of, it has outlasted that. The, the church has been challenged by many things. Many people look at the challenges of the world and think, oh, this is it. This is the end of the church. But the church has survived because the church is Jesus Christ. It's the bride of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and nothing can stop Jesus. He's alive. He's risen. He sits at the right hand of the power of God the Father. Nothing is going to stop it. And so the church is never going to be stopped. It's going to be here today and tomorrow and forever. 
But people think, oh, so Galileo, his discovery, that's going to stop it. No, scientific process, that's it. That's the end of faith, that's the end of church, we have all the answers now. No, the church is still strong. Oh, well then the, the Scopes monkey trials, that's got to be it. Nope, survive that as well. The church even survived the 60s. Man, I was around for the 60s. I was a little kid and I was a little nervous about the church being able to handle that. But it handled the 60s even. And if it can handle that, it can handle anything. It's because Jesus is the head of the church. It survived everything. So this is the best part of the story. We're in the midst of something that will actually outlive all the nations on earth right now. And because of that, because of that promise and that promise being borne out and being witnessed and being testified to through the church, we live in hope because of it. Jesus promises us restoration. He gives us redemption. He promises us restoration. And as a result, we live because of that promise in hope. We have the hope of Jesus Christ. And that's what gives us our joy. That's what gives us our, our, our ability to endure. That's what gives us our steadfastness. It's a big part of our faith and who we are as a people. And so let's dig in. I want to review where we are. We're going to start in verse 33 of Mark chapter 15. But before we get there, I want to just kind of set it up. And then 33 through the end of chapter 15 sets up the resurrection for us. So where we pick it up in verse 33, Jesus has already been crucified. Uh, he, he, he's on the cross. Uh, that means that he's already had his trial. And, and of course, if you know anything about the story, you know that that trial was really in a kangaroo court. The, the trial was one of those situations where the people who wanted to prosecute him already had a verdict. They were just looking for a court to affirm their verdict and let them do what they wanted to do to him, which was to execute Jesus. And so now he's on the cross and, and he's crucified at nine o'clock in the, in the morning. It's called the third hour. That's when he's crucified. And, and, and he ends up getting mocked and, 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 and he's beaten prior to the crucifixion as well. So not only is he physically beaten, but he's also, he's also been mocked and he continues to be mocked while he's on uh, the cross. And when they crucified him, they of course stripped him and they divided his, his garments. And now he's been on there and he's withstood three hours of this reviling and of, of this, this mocking. And there's two things about the mocking that I want to bring up. Two things that emerge in all of the texts of uh, the four different Gospels that are particularly important. First of all, they mock him as the Son of God. He's up on the cross. He doesn't look so powerful up there. It looks like he's lost the game. And so naturally, people are coming to him and say, you say you're the son of God. You say that you're the Messiah. You say that you're the anointed one. You say that you are God's chosen. If that's true, why are you up there on the cross? And they're laughing at him. Now, I became a Christian when I was 27 years old. God saved me at North Phoenix Baptist Church, you know, the Bapidome over there on Central and Bethany Home, okay? My wife actually is an employee over there. She works in the Family Life Center there. So we have big roots there. But God saved me when I was 27 years old. And, and, and for that first 27 years, one of the things I always heard from people who wanted to prevent me from hearing the truth of Jesus Christ is this. They used to say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, when I started finally reading the Gospels for the first time in my life, when I was 27 years old, something really stood out to me. During the crucifixion, if he never claimed to be the son of God, if he never claimed to be the Messiah, why are they mocking him as such? Did they make that up out of whole cloth? The answer is no, they didn't make it up because if you go back and read the Gospels, you realize that he did claim to be the son of God. 
In John chapter 10, he even says, I and the Father, we are one. And if you understand the Greek language there, he's not just saying that we're one, we're unified, we're best buddies, we have our arms around each other. It's not like that. He's saying we are one in the same essence. He was saying, I'm God. And the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders who had asked him the question at that moment, they knew exactly what what he was saying because the very next thing in, in, in John chapter 10 is that they picked up stones to kill him because it's blasphemous to claim that you are God. So he claims that he's God. So that's the first thing that's interesting about what's going on with this mocking. The second thing that I find interesting is that they are also asking him for a sign. They're saying, okay, so you're the son of God, you're the Messiah, you're God's chosen, you must have all this power. If that's true, then why don't you come down off that cross and save yourself and prove to us by that sign that you really are the son of God? Well, here's the problem with that. Jesus also tells us in the Gospels that the reason he's here the reason he was incarnated, the reason he became a man and came and dwelt among us for 34, 35, 33, 36 years, whatever it is that you want to say, the reason he was here was because he was sent on a mission by the Father. He was given a purpose by the Father and that purpose was to save his people from their sins. And so if he comes down off the cross and saves himself, he cannot fulfill the purpose that the Father had given him, which was to save us. If he saves himself, we do not get salvation ourselves. So he couldn't come down off the cross. Here's something else that's interesting about that. There are mortal men who could actually maneuver their way off of a cross. It would be painful. It would be really hard. But there are mortal men who could actually pull their hands out of those, not, of those nails and pull their feet out of their nails. It's not that necessarily that big of a trick. I'll tell you what is a real big trick. That's dying and then three days later busting out of a tomb alive. That's the real sign of God, the resurrection. He was dead and now he's alive. He is gone, but he's not gone in the sense that we never see him again. He's gone in the sense that he's alive and well and ruling the universe from the right hand of the power of God. And he spent 40 days here appearing to people and demonstrating that he really was alive. And people testified to this. Here's the funny thing about that. Those very people who were mocking him on the cross saying, show us a sign, prove that you're the son of God by coming down on off of that cross, those very people didn't believe it when he was resurrected from the dead. The really big miracle. The one miracle that should have proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Thus proving that if you're somebody who's just looking for a sign, there's probably not much that God can do to convince you because he's already given us the most magnificent sign ever. A dead guy is alive. And he said he was going to do it. That's what's really cool. He said he was going to do it repeatedly. And so now that's where we are. He's been crucified. He's on the cross starting in Mark chapter uh, 33. uh, Sorry, uh, that's not right. Mark doesn't have 33 chapters. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, so now it's noon, they measured uh, the days of the hour by how long there had been daylight. So now it's about noon. And when that had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, this has been a question by a lot of people for 2,000 years. What what, what does that mean, there there was darkness over the land? Well, some people supposed, well, there must have been a solar eclipse. There was an eclipse that day. You know what? Astronomers have gone back and they've said, that's not it. It wasn't an eclipse. 
Other people have posited the idea that there was a very big sandstorm that made it look so dark that it seemed like the sun's light was turned out. Well, I find it interesting that four different gospel writers writing at four different times who witnessed this same event, okay, uh, none of them mentioned this magnificent sandstorm. So that seems like that's not, that couldn't possibly, that seems a little unreasonable that it was a sandstorm. One of the people who records the crucifixion Luke, in chapter 23, he says at, cha- at, at the sixth hour, there was three hours of darkness when the sun's light failed. So Luke tells us the sun's light failed. So here's the question. Why did the sun's light fail? This is not a trick question. The answer is God. God did it. In the biblical narrative, darkness symbolizes two things. It symbolizes grief, mourning, lament, and sorrow. And there was much to be grieved by. The Messiah was being executed. But it also is a symbol of God's judgment on sin. And in fact, in the prophet Amos, hundreds of years before, God says this through the prophet Amos. Let me read it for you. It's from chapter 8. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So that's what's going on here. God is determined that this is when sin is going to be judged and we'll talk a little bit more about that and so it goes dark for three hours and there is mourning and lament but also there is judgment at this time. And then verse 34, and at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani. By the way, what Jesus' obsession is with a dusty little town in central Arizona, I will never understand that in the biblical text. Eloi, Eloi. Why not heal a bend? I don't understand. Okay, bad joke. All right, here we go. What does he mean by this? So, verse 35 uh, helps to explain this, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling out for Elijah. Now, that's interesting to me because what Jesus was doing was he was speaking in Aramaic, which was actually the lingua franca of the time. Everybody around there supposedly should have been able to speak Aramaic because it was the language of the business in the time. So scholars believe that what they're doing is they're just continuing to mock him by making fun of what he's saying. Eloi, Eloi. Oh, it sounds like he's calling for Elijah, the great prophet. Oh, let's see if Elijah shows up. So it continues the mocking. But actually what Jesus is doing is he's quoting a messianic psalm. He's quoting Psalm 22, which is a psalm that King David wrote in the middle of grief and torment and oppression and challenges and trials. He wrote this and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what it really is speaking of is is divine abandonment because of sin. This, This is the moment when Jesus actually becomes our sin when he becomes the sin that he he has come to pay the price for, to atone for, to be the perfect sacrifice for. 
And it's interesting because this is the first time in Scripture that Jesus does not call God Father. It's the first time he actually calls him God. And so it it indicates a a separation in their relationship because of this sin. And I want to make this point because this is a very important distinction. And we need to grab a hold of this. When Jesus was on the cross, he did not become a sinner. He became sin. There was a big difference between the two. We are told repeatedly throughout Scripture, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we could have redemption and eventually be restored, so that we could be made whole with God. And, and the book of Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest, Jesus, who, does not, who is not able to sympathize with our plight because he's been tempted in every way as we have. The only difference, though, is that We face temptation and we fall to it. Jesus never fell to the temptation. He never sinned. He was was without sin. He's like us in every way, yet he is without sin. But when he went to the cross in order to fulfill the purpose and the mission of God the Father to save his people from their sin, he had to become sin. And so on the cross, he becomes sin, not a sinner. And that's where God judges the sin and, and allows that payment to be taken for the sin. And so he's quoting this messianic uh, psalm, Psalm 22, that many people say pointed towards the Messiah. But the fact that he's quoting that psalm also helps us to understand that even at that moment when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus also knows this is not the end of the story. Because that psalm also goes on to exalt God as the one who is going to save him. In fact, at one point it says this, Yet you are holy, God. You are holy and our fathers trusted you and you delivered them. So Jesus, by quoting this psalm, he's quoting the the grief and the darkness and the mourning of of this sin, but he's also quoting it because he's letting us know that he knows it's not the end of the story. He knows that in three days he's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to come busting out of that tomb to give people life. And then verse 36 And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take take him down. Again, another sarcastic comment by somebody at the crucifixion, enjoying the entertainment. So what's the wine about? Well, the wine is yet another mocking attempt to keep Jesus alive so that the entertainment can continue, so they can continue to talk trash about Jesus. And, And the way it might help keep him alive is that the wine would help quench his thirst But also, it was the type of wine that you and I maybe aren't so familiar with. This was not a a nice table wine that you and I might sip with, with pasta or a steak, but rather this was a much stronger wine. It was a wine that was more like a narcotic, and the idea was that it would help deaden the pain and maybe he could hang in there on the cross for even longer. So it was a mocking attempt to get him to to prolong the suffering possibly. And then verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Other, other uh, um, gospels record that that loud cry uh, are, are these words, it is finished. Well, what's finished? What, why, did he, why did he say that? What he's talking about is, is, is that sin is finished. It's done. It's taken care of. And it's finished in three ways. Number one, there is no longer a need for the sacrificial system for sin. There's no longer a need to, to, uh, uh, to execute 
lambs and goats and, and, and bulls and birds as sacrifice for sin. He is the last sacrifice, the only sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. So it's finished in that regard. No more sacrificial sin. Second of all, the power of sin is finished as well. Because now the Holy Spirit comes and resides in, in those who believe in Jesus and that Holy Spirit gives us the power for the first time in our lives to actually say no to sin and have the ability to do it. Now do we sin still as followers of Jesus? Yes, we've been through all, all of this in Romans, of course, because our flesh is still fighting with the Holy Spirit. And so yes, sometimes we do fall. But since Jesus entered our lives, this is the first time that we actually have the ability not to sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Before Jesus, we had no ability not to sin. We were always, we were always going to sin before Jesus came in our lives. And then the third thing, that it took care of this crucifixion for sin is the eternal consequence of sin. The fact that if, if, if you don't allow Jesus to be the one that pays for your sins, you're gonna end up spending eternity in a place called hell, separated from God for all of eternity. So, so condemnation is taken care of as well, judgment and condemnation of your sin. So the sacrificial system is done, the power of sin is done, and so is the condemnation, the eternal consequence. And then verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. This is symbolic of the fact that from now on, because of what Jesus did, professional religious people no longer have to be mediators between you and God. The, the, the professional religious class has now been removed in terms of you being able to have unfettered access to God and, and the priesthood of the believer has been recaptured. The book of 1 Peter in the New Testament tells us that the church, the bride of Christ, is a royal nation and a royal priesthood and a holy people. And so now we have direct access to God and that includes not just Jews but also non-Jews. Anybody who believes in Jesus has, has direct access to God now. The, the temple curtain has been torn in two. Verses 39 through 41 say this. And when the centurion, he's a Roman soldier who's in charge of a hundred other Roman soldiers, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that it was in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man must be the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark is making sure that we have a careful accounting of all the witnesses to the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. And this becomes an important point uh, later on. But that centurion, that centurion in verse, in verse 39, he looked at the way Jesus died and he said, surely he must be the Son of God. There was something about the way Jesus died. This centurion has witnessed hundreds if not thousands of these executions, but there was something about the way Jesus died that testified to the reality of Jesus. In his death, he testified to his own reality. 
And what's interesting about that is that you and I as followers of Christ, you and I as part of the, of the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, you and I are called to live a life in the same way, a life that testifies to the reality of Jesus. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, verse 16, that you and I are to live in such a way that our light shines among other people so that they see the good works that God is doing through our lives and therefore don't praise us, don't give us glory, but give glory glory to God and give praise to God. We live in a way that points to the reality of Jesus. Jesus died and that testified to his reality. You and I live and that testifies to his reality as well. We are the church. We, we are part of the people who know that he is risen. And then verses 42 through 43 about Joseph and when evening had come since it was the day of preparation that is the day before the Sabbath Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that the, the Jewish religious council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. Probably the two most important words in these two verses. Took courage and went to Pilate, the governor, and asked him for the body of Jesus. Joseph took courage in doing this. Why did this take courage for him to go to Pilate and ask him for the body of Jesus? because this could get him killed. The very people that wanted Jesus crucified, that wanted him executed, if they heard that Joseph was taking sympathy and having compassion on Jesus and his family by doing this, by seeking the kingdom of God through Jesus, they could also come along and decide that Joseph needed to be executed. So he could literally die for doing this. But even if they don't kill him physically, there's also a possibility that he could lose everything he had. He's a member of their ruling council. He has position, he has influence, he has power, and as a result, he has wealth. He has all of these things, and they could go to him and not necessarily kill him physically, but they could strip him of all of these things, which would be a death of sorts as well, right? You ever thought about what it would be like to live in a place where any association whatsoever with Jesus could get you killed? Any association whatsoever with Jesus could have you banned from the community, could, could ruin you economically, could take away everything in your life that's important to you? Do you understand that there are many places in the world where that's what it's like? That if anybody comes out and confesses that they are a Christian, that they believe in Christ, that they can be killed and they can be ruined in community and financially? And do you understand that those are the places where the church is, is experiencing its most phenomenal growth? The reason is because persecution and oppression tested faith. And the only way that we can find out if our faith is real is, it, is if it is tested. And nothing tests faith like persecution and oppression. In those places, you find people who really believe in Jesus no matter what happens to them, even if it takes them to death. And then we wrap up 15 with these verses. So Pilate, the governor, was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped Jesus in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So again, careful accounting for the witnesses. 
But all of this in these four verses that describes what happens to the body uh, is, is according to Jewish custom and Jewish tradition and even in some parts Jewish law. Within 24 hours of, of somebody dying, something had to be done with the body. And, and, and it often depended on the economic background that you came from. If you were very poor, and really the only thing you owned were the clothes on your back, which is what was Jesus' economic situation, if you were very, very poor, ordinarily what would happen to you is you would be just thrown into a shallow grave. And if you were fortunate, they might throw a little bit of dirt on you. That was your burial. If you, ha- if you had a, a background of some economic means, then, then what you would probably end up in is a sarcophagus, which is another word for a bone box. It's, it's like a coffin. But sometimes they'd have to kind of chop the body up and make it small enough to fit in this little bone box. But if you were a rich person, if you were wealthy, you had one of these tombs that was cut out of a rock because it took a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of labor to cut out these rocks and make these beautiful tombs where they would actually fashion shelves and they would have sometimes as many as four or six different shelves for four or six different dead bodies in the tomb. And the tomb would have a, a, a rock that was rolled in front of the entrance that was very, very heavy. Scholars estimate that the rock was between three and five, th- these rocks were, were between three and 5,000 pounds. So you needed help to be able to move this rock. So Joseph was probably looking for a little bit of help to be able to lay Jesus in there. Joseph was a man of means. And he took Jesus, who economically had nothing but was rich in every other way so that you and I might become rich, and he laid him in this rich man's tomb, not because Jesus had wealth, but because Jesus, Joseph knew, was the Son of God. He was the anointed. He was the Messiah. And we have the witnesses there, Mary and Mary again. And now, let me repeat to you what David read, those first eight verses, and that's where we'll drive this thing home. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went down to the tomb. This is a normal thing. Somebody has died and they're in one of these tombs. People would come every day, other than the Sabbath, but they would come every day and they would anoint the body with oils and spices. And so this is kind of a normal thing. And, when they, and, and they were saying to one another, well, who's going to roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? So they're worried about who's going to be there to help them move this, this, uh, this big rock. And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. No body, but there's this guy just sitting there in a white robe. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, If you have a Bible, you'll notice that in the text there's another 12 verses after that. Uh, The vast majority of biblical scholars believe that the original autograph autograph of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, actually ended with verse 8, that that's the end of the Gospel. A, A lot of people are troubled by that, though, because it's kind of an abrupt ending. It's kind of a weird ending. There's no resolution. 
All we know is that the body is gone and, and they were very, very afraid. And so they're a little bit troubled by that. Um, there's a guy named Craig Evans. He's, he's widely regarded as one of the best New Testament scholars in the world today. And he's written, he's really pretty much dedicated his whole life to the Gospel of Mark and writing about Mark. He's written several commentaries on the Gospel of Mark. And I think he got it right when he, when he argues that the reason this is true is because Mark wrote his Gospel in many ways like a Greek tragedy in the form in the methodology of a Greek tragedy, the way a Greek tragedy would be told in story form, and the way those tragedies often would end was with very little resolution. They would end with tension. They would end with questions being asked. And there are some questions to be asked there. Now, I will say this. In the Gospel of Mark, three different times, starting in chapter 8, Jesus goes to his disciples and specifically and clearly tells them, I have to go to Jerusalem. There I am going to be crucified and three days later I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And all three of those times, the disciples and the people who heard him say this looked at him and tried to figure out what was wrong with Jesus. They, they couldn't understand what he was saying. He was not supposed to die. They didn't believe him. They didn't think he meant it. They thought he was speaking metaphorically. Peter even, in, in, in Mark chapter 8, Peter even decided to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him for saying such a thing. And if you know that story, you know that Jesus rebuked him right back. It's like Jesus said, hey, Peter, anything you can do, I can do better. So here you go. Get behind me, Satan, all right? He says, no, you don't understand Peter, you're thinking about the things of man, not the things of God. I'm here to do God's mission. They didn't understand it. But now the resurrection has fulfilled those three times that Jesus said, I'm going to be busting out of that tomb. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Mark reports that the first witnesses to this, obviously there were many other witnesses as the other gospels tell us, but Mark reports that the first witnesses to this were women. And this is especially courageous as well. He's showing just as much courage as Joseph of, of, of Arimathea showed. And here's why. In their culture, the three dominant ethnic groups in that time, the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews, all of them had a view of women that they were second-class citizens, you couldn't trust anything they say, and in fact, they weren't even allowed to testify as witnesses in court. And so Mark comes along now and says, by the way, the first witnesses to this are women. Now, I, again, when I was growing up, I heard, oh, oh you know, the, the, the whole resurrection thing, that's just made up. If you're going to make this up, why would you make your first witnesses women in that culture and in that context? It doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. If anything, it reaffirms that this actually happened. And then we also see that Peter gets special mention from Jesus. He said, go and tell the disciples and Peter a lot of people believe that the reason for this is Jesus is letting Peter know. It's a signal to Peter who denied Jesus three times, who claimed that he would go with Jesus to death and then backed off. Even a little servant girl backed him down. Jesus is letting him know, you're forgiven. I still love you. And eventually he has an encounter with Peter. Jesus does, the resurrected Jesus. And he tells Peter, you're, you're going to be a great leader in what's going to happen next. And so, we're told in verse 5 that they were alarmed. They saw this angel. And the angel said, don't be alarmed. The, the word actually, a little bit better, I think, means distressed. Now, why were they distressed? 
I think it's obvious. The body is gone. When they first saw that nothing was there, what were they thinking? Was the body stolen? Was it misplaced? You see, again, they didn't expect the resurrection. Jesus told them three times that he was going to come out of the tomb on the third day, yet they were still going to anoint his body with oil and spices. But now, this is the moment that they begin to come to grips with this truth. Jesus is risen and he is alive. Their distress led them to the truth. How many times have you been distressed, wondering what to do, wondering what is next, And that leads you to the truth and that leads you to a solution. This is the ultimate example of that happening. And then we get to verse 8. And these three words, they were trembling, they were astonished, and they were afraid. It's interesting. You you do a a word study on these. The word trembling is, is translating the Greek word traumas. Now, just you get one guess. Guess what English word we get from the Greek word trauma. Trauma. It's traumatic for them. This was traumatic for them. Wouldn't it be for you? You got all your oil and spices, and the biggest problem you have is wondering how that, how that, how that stone's going to get moved away. And they get there, and it's already been moved, and there's a guy sitting there in kind of a funny-looking robe, and there's no body. Let me contemporize this for you. Okay, so... Let's say your Uncle Bob dies and you go to the funeral and you're there and somebody walks up and says, anybody know where Uncle Bob was? He was in the casket a few minutes ago, but I can't find him now. This would be a little bit traumatic. I'm telling you, I think we sterilize this a little bit too much. I don't think we appreciate what's really going on. I came here as the pastor a little, too, a little over two years ago and many of you were traumatized by the fact that I appreciate the Godfather movies. This guy is missing. He's gone. He's risen. He's alive. A dead guy is now alive. That's traumatic. And he wasn't just dead. I'm telling you, the centurions, these guys witnessed hundreds of these. They tested this. They knew he was dead. He was not just dead. He was Texas dead. He was dead. He was eight-syllable dead, and he's alive now. He's gone. But he's still with them, and he's going to appear. And that led to astonishment. The Greek word for astonishment is ecstasis. Okay, they were traumatized, but at the same time, they were ecstatic. They were excited. In the midst of their trauma, they're ecstatic. So they're beginning to process the ramifications of the resurrection. He's really God. He's really the Christ, and He's alive. Therefore, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, you and I can also live with full courage. Paul exhorts us to live with full courage because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Full courage in the face of persecution, uh, in the face of trial, in the face of suffering, while also as the church working side by side for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. We also read that they were afraid. The Greek word is phobos. We get phobia from that word. But literally the way it's used here, it means that they were afraid about what the future held because of this new event in their lives. They knew that things would never be the same again. Many of you remember September 11th, 2001, 9-11. Remember in the wake of that, for about a month, all we heard, people saying, things will never be the same again. Things will never be the same again. I got to tell you, it kind of feels today like things are exactly the way they were before 9-11 now. 
Things are the same again. But things haven't been the same for 2,000 years since the resurrection. The church is still here. Jesus is still alive. Jesus is reigning and ruling. The, the, the church just rolls on and it will continue to roll on. Things have never been the same since the resurrection. And even though it was good that he was risen, these witnesses were also wrestling with the fact that they knew that this was going to change their future and, and that, that it meant their future was going to be different. You can't witness something like this and not go and tell people, right? You don't just keep something like this to yourself. But now you're going to go and start telling people that a dead guy is alive. And not only that, but he died for your sins and you can have salvation and redemption in him. Do you think they're going to face a little persecution? Some mocking of their own? Some suffering of their own? Do you think that their life is going to change? Their standard operating procedures? Their worship? Their serving? Their giving? And their trust? All of these things are going to change. Things will never be the same for them. I've said this a hundred times since coming here. If you're new, this will be the first time you've ever heard it. It'll be fresh to you. If, you, if you're not new, you've heard this from me before. But this is another example of how interesting it is to me how many people come to faith in Christ not expecting that it's going to change their life very much other than possibly their life is going to get a little bit easier and more convenient because after all, that's what Jesus owes them. We do not understand the radical nature of the gospel. Your life will be different. That book that I read a couple of years ago, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, this woman, when, when she encountered the gospel for the first time from this friend of hers and, and began to wrestle with it for, for 18 months, she's wrestling with the, the truth and the veracity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at one point, she thinks to herself, if this is true, that means that I am going to have to break away from my romantic partner. My life is going to be different. You want to know the irony of that? That was the smallest thing in her life that ended up changing. When she became a Christian, she not only lost her romantic partner, but she lost her community and her career and her job. She had to move away. Her life was radically different and she would tell you radically better because of the gospel in her life. You see, these witnesses, these disciples had that kind of fear. They had an awe about what the future held. But here's what they also knew and understood fully and what we hope you, you will know and understand fully as well. And I'm speaking both to what we would call believers, people who believe in Jesus Christ, and those of you who are here today and you're going, I don't get this stuff, I don't buy this stuff, I don't believe this stuff. We're speaking to both of you and we hope you'll get this. This is what they got. This is what they understood fully. The cross and the resurrection happened just like Jesus said it would. They didn't get it then. They didn't think he meant it. They couldn't grasp the magnitude, but now they do. Now they understand it. And one of the things they know now for sure is that in Christ they are forgiven of their sins, they are reconciled with God, and they will have eternal life in heaven now. Their future is secure. And in the Gospel of Luke, one of the first things that Jesus says when he goes up on the cross is this. He looks at the people who crucified him unjustly and who are now mocking and reviling him and he prays to God and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He says, Father, forgive them. They are deceived. They don't know what the truth is. That's what Jesus offers us today. Believers and non-believers. And I know that 
that many people come and, and they say, you offer this forgiveness of Jesus, Pastor Frank, but let me tell you something. You don't know me. You don't know the things I've done. Nobody could possibly forgive me. There isn't a forgiveness in the world that's big enough for the sins that I have committed. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus forgives everything. Everything is forgiven. And if you believe that you have outsinned the grace and the love of Jesus, you have been deceived. Your sin, my sin, it started with deception in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Sin started with deception and it continues throughout the biblical narrative and it continues throughout our lives today. John, uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus says that Satan is a liar and a murderer and he murders us by his lies. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says this about Satan. He says that Satan, in order to deceive us, disguises himself as an angel of light. So if you think you have outsinned the grace of God through Jesus Christ, you are deceived. But there's another group of people also who are deceived. Those are the people who have bought into the idea that there is no such thing as sin, that sin is just a perspective, evil is just a worldview that's not real, and I really don't need redemption, I really don't need salvation, I really don't need reconciliation to God. You are also deceived by Satan. He has come to you as an angel of light. And you believe you're enlightened, but you're deceived. So whether you're deceived beyond, beyond redemption or you're deceived in, in, in thinking that you don't need deception, you need Jesus. And the only way around or out of that deception and the eternal consequences of that deception is to embrace Jesus, is to come to Jesus. Listen, I am not offering our deception as an excuse. It doesn't let us off the hook. We are still accountable and responsible for God, to God for our sin. But it does explain why we don't think we, can, we need Jesus or why he's not enough. And now you know. Jesus is risen and he is alive. And he is alive so that you and I can live. This is the beginning of the new. This is the beginning of the way things are supposed to be.